0: to what she said on 105.9 The Region, I'm your host, Candace Sampson. There's a lot of incredible interviews in this week's show that you won't want to miss, so instead of my usual preamble, I'm going to get right to it and share what's coming up in the next hour. Periods are a normal part of women's lives, and yet there is still an unbelievable amount of stigma surrounding them. Professional triathlete Emma Pallant-Brown knows this all too well. When an image of her racing while on her period gained viral traction on Instagram, Emma decided to push back on the comments and chose to speak out and acknowledge what is considered taboo and why we need to change the narrative around periods to support women and girl athletes. Allie Payne is back and with a topic most parents have to deal with every day, sibling rivalry. Allie sheds some light on why sibling rivalry happens, what to do when it gets really toxic, and how to help facilitate better communication with your teens. We all have a favorite F word, but there's only one person I know of whose favorite F word is forgiveness, and that's Shannon Maroney. Shannon is the author of Heal for Real and joins me to discuss why forgiveness is so powerful. And trust me, you will want to hear why Shannon is a true expert on forgiving. There's nothing funny about anorexia, but as with most things, that doesn't mean we can't insert a little humor when discussing it. No one knows this better than Sherry Siegel Glick, who is sharing her journey with diet culture, body image, and anorexia in her new book, The Skinny which follows her messy but hopeful fight for full recovery. Finally, Anne Brody has her regular roundup of new shows and movies over at talk.com this week, so we could share her interview with the one and only Brad Garrett, who is currently starring alongside Patricia Arquette in the new Apple TV Plus show, High Desert. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The
1: Region.
0: My first guest today has earned a reputation as one of the fastest women in the world of triathlon, but she's also using her platform to break stigmas and create change. From her incredible record in Ironman races to her powerful stand on normalizing conversations about menstruation in sports, Emma Palant brown is an inspiration on many levels. She joins me today to discuss the importance of having open conversations about menstruation and women in sports. Welcome to What She Said, Emma.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So before we jump
0: into the subject matter at hand, um, I mentioned in the intro, you have a really astounding career, which includes an Ironman World Championship. Uh, what what achievements are you most proud of so far and what goals are you aiming for?
2: Yeah, I think probably um, I'm most proud of... Um, Running-wise, European cross-country champion at under 23, just because I did that pretty much off cross-training. I was really injured when I did that. Um, And then moving to triathlon, triathlon was like a whole new challenge for me because I'm not the strongest swimmer. I had to really learn how to swim, and um, I was forever chasing in the race, so you had to be quite mentally tough. So. When I came second at uh, my first world champs half Ironman, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of a massive breakthrough for me. How did you come to be involved in triathlons? So um, I was always doing sport when I was little. And then um, I kind of, um, running was a thing that I enjoyed the most. And uh, my running coach was very adamant that if you wanted to compete internationally and be the best, you had to do one sport. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of gave my all to running. Then I got quite injured, um, and started biking and swimming, um, to, to kind of cross train and keep fit whilst I couldn't run. Um, and that's kind of where I found triathlon and, and I only wanted to do kind of one race just to have a goal kind of with my cross training and then go back to running. But, um, yeah, I fell in love with the challenge and, and kind of the chase. So. Recently,
0: you had an image of you competing um, during your period, which went v- viral and sparked all this conversation. Uh, and I, if people listening, I'm sure they can imagine the comments I, on these images, I'm sure. Can you share your initial reaction to that image going viral and why you felt it was so important to dr- address it publicly?
2: Yeah, so, um, to begin with, it was kind of, um, I wasn't the one that put the photo up Um it was, it was, um, put up to wish us good luck for a race. And then someone had commented, um, on it, that it wasn't a very flattering picture of me and, and should be cropped. And that kind of just blew all these emotions up of, cause it's something that I'm so proud of because as an endurance runner, I wasn't very healthy and I didn't, I, I lost my period for a long amount of time. So for me that was like a really tough period and and I actually had to fight hard to get it back um and I think to promote it as something in female sports is so important it's kind of something that should never be cropped out of a photo because I think it is so key for sports women to also be able to be women and to be healthy and um yeah I was really proud of that picture and for someone to to kind of, I felt like, want to almost glamorize and, and clean it up and put up this beautiful picture. For me, that's not what sport is about because I had so many amazing role models when I was growing up that were reachable, that would talk to me, that would mentor me. And I always felt that was my responsibility then. If I had good performances and I became someone that, that young girls could look up to, I wanted to be reachable and in this society especially to to then try and wash things over and pretend that you're a robot and you're up there and, and you're untouchable is kind of the exact opposite to the message that I would want to kind of give to young girls. And um, yeah, I thought it was an, a really important thing to actually start talking about rather than to hide and crop out and and kind of wash away. So that image gets posted.
0: There's a flood of uh commentary on it how does that How does that trickle down to you? Do people now start to reach out to you personally because of that photo?
2: Yeah, so I was overwhelmed with so originally, I kind of just commented on his comment um saying that why, why I didn't want it to be cropped um and then, yeah, I just had so many messages, um especially and obviously some. Some were um, very different messages and a lot of women were like, wow, good for you. And some were like, wow, that's brave. And, and some guys were like, oh, but if, if I went to my office and I asked the 20 women there, none of them would like, they'd be mortified if that photo was up of them. And that's when I felt, okay, it's kind of my responsibility then to show, I'm not just saying these words, like I'm actually going to share it and put it on my own wall, because I am proud of it. And and I don't want women to feel like it's something that they'd be embarrassed to see um, out there, because you control everything that you can control. But if there is a leak, you shouldn't be like terrified that that's going to happen, because it might well happen, and, and there's nothing wrong with it.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I think back to even in my youth, we all had that paranoia of bleeding through at school and how mortifying that would be and we we really need to get past that this is a natural things that happen and sometimes these things just they're they're messy like what can we say right like it's very natural part of being a woman i would like to move a little bit though into the physical impact of menstruation on performance because you talked that you your period had stopped for a time then it came back so how do you think this awareness can benefit female athletes and what changes can be made in sports to accommodate this?
2: Yeah, I think I think first of all, to not accept. If, if you're a sportswoman and you lose your period, um, I was lucky enough to be on UK Athletics Funding and to have good doctors, a good coach who didn't accept it and, and were like, OK, we need to get this back. And I think that has to be something, um, first and foremost, that, that it. Is a healthy? It's it's not a healthy thing for a high performing sportswoman to not have a period. That that shouldn't be kind of accepted. Um, and the because the problems that lead, I had stress fractures, I had low bone density. Um, the knock on to then, yeah. And, and we took action pretty fast when when I lost my period, and it still took four years to to get it back. Um, so I do think it has to be that awareness of a, you're comfortable to talk about it. If if you're not getting your period, like girls need to know, okay, there's somewhere I can go and there's someone I can talk to about this. Um, and I feel as well, like there's so much research coming, starting to come out, um, about how, how performing on a period affects different people. Um, that we all have such a unique story. And actually, the more you can kind of share your story and um, talk to other women, one of your symptoms and how you deal with it, it's going to benefit someone else out there. And they might be doing something that, oh, you hadn't thought of. And another thing that I've learned so much from this about, I've looked into menstrual, uh, menstrual cups, which is something that I'd tried before and I didn't get on with but then I've learned so many tricks and so many more recommendations now from women of actually what to try and actually, yeah, it's, it's been so educational for me. And I think that's just from honest, open conversation. And, and the more we can kind of actually put out, um, what you're doing and and how, I think there's always other women that it can help.
0: Yeah. And this is such a you know, in our society, it's stigmatized, it's treated as a taboo subject. We're still not past that. And I don't don't know why. So this is great that you're bringing this forward, especially for girls in sports. So in what way do you think the narrative around periods in sports should change? And how can we create an environment that supports women and girl athletes?
2: Yeah, I think I think firstly, being confident that you can perform on your period and and Periods are so unique and so different for every woman out there. Um but there are things you can do to help and and Stacy Sims is a great person. I've started reading loads of her research that she's actually really moving forward to okay, if you're your your how you can periodize your training around what what you're doing um around kind of your periods and your your menstrual cycle um and even things like backing off caffeine a little bit going into your period means that it can not be as heavy, your your body temperature maybe won't go up as much, um, all these little things that, yeah, we're just starting to kind of scratch the edge on. I think the more research that we can do out there and um, yeah, it's, it's just going to be something that I think there's so much more knowledge out there. But we need to start spreading that knowledge as well. And, and there's so much more to find out. And it's kind of that collective, like you say, first of all, being comfortable to be able to talk about it.
0: OK, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be back with triathlete Emma Pallant-Brown. Okay, we're back with triathlete Emma Pallant-Brown. We're discussing uh, the stigmatization of menstruation uh, for girls, particularly as it pertains to them in sports. And Emma, many girls tend to leave sports during puberty, and by age 17, 51% have stopped participating. So what message would you like to give young girls who might be listening that feel self-conscious about their bodies or apprehensive about participating in sports?
2: Yeah, I think first of all, um, it's, it's feeling comfortable. I, I, my like love would be for girls at that age to feel accepted and comfortable in whatever they enjoy and want to do. And the great thing I think at that age is there are so many clubs and so many different sports, um, there's such a variety out there that you can try. And if one thing like you don't feel like you're particularly enjoying it or it's too performance driven. Like there's so many sports out there, and I think it's the roles of of sports clubs and of um yeah schools at that age to just make it a safe kind of warm place that that anyone can feel good about themselves um participating in sport, and you don't have to be the best and you don't have to be particularly goal driven but you can you can just participate because. Often at that age, actually the superstars come through later and it's about sticking with, with things when your body is changing and there is so much change going on and, and your social kind of suddenly feels like very important. And I think it, it's having those places where sport can also be social and you can have your friends there and it can be an enjoyable thing um, because at that age, being fun is absolutely key. And, and, and as I was growing up, that's where all my best friends were at the running club. And we were such a strong, tight group of girls. We actually carried each other through where a lot of, like you say, so many people dropped out of that age. And we all kind of carried through to, to university, which I think um, was unique, but we kind of had that bond. Um, and, and I read about it in Paula Ratcliffe's book as well. At that age, she had that group of friends that were all making it fun and and they would love doing what they were were doing. Um, So I think, yeah, we need to promote more of that, making it enjoyable at that age.
0: When you first went out with this story and started talking about it publicly, you know, that took a lot of courage. It's frustrating to me that you have to have courage to talk about something so natural, but you do because the environment is so charged on the internet. Were there Moments, though, that made you feel empowered, part of a community, made you smile and laugh. Did you get positive, a lot of positive feedback and could you share a story maybe?
2: Yeah, definitely. Like so many of the messages, like I would say like just one bad comment, I I wouldn't even care because I'd read 10 like amazing comments and yeah, it was just so, just so many like amazing people reaching out and, and telling their stories and saying, I wish I'd seen this when I was younger, and I think one that really hit me, and, and I had a couple of dads reach out to me and talking about their young girls that they were trying to encourage in sports at that age, and one guy was saying about his two girls um, and um yeah, one of them had just gone on her period and now wanted to to miss kind of her her sports when when she was having her period, and he didn't feel comfortable talking to her or. He didn't have any experiences he could share. Um, and he said this just made it so much easier for him to show something and and to give someone else's experience that she could relate to. And for me, that, yeah, I would share it a million times over just for one story like that. And and it really touched me just how supportive actually a lot of men also are about wanting women to participate in sports and, and encouraging women to be strong and and girls at that age. It kind of yeah, it just made me feel, yeah, amazing. It, it was it was amazing. So what's next for you? Um, so next up, I've got Andorra 70.3 and Swansea, and that kind of leads me into European and world champs, which are, are big goals for the year.
0: All right, so where can people keep up with you then, Emma? Because you are on a roll here. Uh, so where can people follow your journey and and find out more and keep the discussion going in particular? Uh, about uh, women and girls and menstruation in sports?
2: Yeah, so um, I have my own Instagram, M underscore Palant, that I post on a lot. um, And I have lots of incredible sponsors who are championing women at this time. And um, Form Goggles actually just recently did a competition to get more females participating in triathlon. So check them out, uh, Form Goggles. Um, Yeah, you can search them in again instagram was where they had their competition but they have an awesome website Um, and again we just want to get more people involved and and feel like the the beauty of sport and everything that it can bring to lives
0: all right wonderful we're going to put all those links when this goes out on podcast thank you so much for joining me today Emma.
2: thank you so much for having me
0: Welcoming back the incredible Allie Payne, our resident expert on the parent-teen relationship. And today she's joining us to discuss a topic that resonates with so many families, sibling rivalry. We'll be diving into what sibling rivalry is, why it happens, and most importantly, what you as parents can do about it when it gets out of hand. So let's get into it. Welcome back, Allie. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a brief overview of what sibling rivalry is and why it is such a common phenomenon in families?
4: Yes, and exhausting often for parents. So essentially, sibling rivalry is a competition for survival. So think back to like, you know, prehistoric days and and Discovery Channel, right? Like it is the cubs or the babies who are loved the most, who are most compliant or or earn your approval that get fed. Hmm? And are protected with a roof. And so there's a just a basic survival competition to it. Um, so making sure that you are really affirming each child, not for the same thing, because they're different, but equally is important and in front of each other. Um, And also making sure that um, you understand it's also an expression of their autonomy, of need to be different than the other. So we can acknowledge their differences and make that good instead of constantly wanting to be the same, them to be the same. Yeah. And, you know, the thing of
0: it is, though, sibling rivalry sometimes can get really out of hand and become incredibly toxic in a home. So what signs should parents be watching for in
4: that regard? And when should they step in? So I think as soon as you notice it's gone from um, regular bickering to toxic, and what I mean by that is contempt. Now the definition of contempt is treating someone as a lesser human being. So when the comments from one child to another become really cutting and degrading their character, not just, I I don't like that behavior, but their character, you must step in. That is toxic. And it is proven that that actually changes the brain of the receiver when it happens long-term. The contempt normally happens, I'm finding, between children who are of a greater uh, age difference or are very polar opposite in their personality styles. So they are trying to not be that one. I don't want to be you. So if I'm older, everything you represent is baby and dumb and lame. And I'm not a baby. Like all of a sudden I want to be the adult camp, like sit at the adult table. So I will make everything that sibling, younger sibling represents horrific, absurd, terrible. And I will communicate that. Um, And so what I'm trying to do as a teen is I'm trying to assert that I'm not a baby. So what we want to do is normalize that it's okay for their sibling to be a younger, a child, because that's who they are. And I'm not asking you to be a child. You're not a child. You're becoming this. So we want to acknowledge that child's independence, give them maybe a few more adult things, really mark out distinctions where you're treating them differently and older than you would the younger child so that they don't feel the need to constantly push away And you stop those toxic comments by appreciation. The antidote for contempt is appreciation. So at the table, where as much as age appropriate, uh, we did this in our family once a week or so. We had to each say something we appreciated about the other person. Kindness humanizes that other person as opposed to contempt, which dehumanizes them. And that must be stopped because the toxicity to the receiver is very real. And you know, I, I think a lot of
0: parents. I know myself personally. Sibling rivalry drove me crazy in my house, but ultimately, the communication between the siblings needs to improve. So, how can parents help facilitate better communication
4: between siblings? Great question. So, this is where the beginning of self advocacy, okay? self advocacy comes in. So, self advocacy is about asking for what I do want. Not saying what I don't want, okay? What Because what I don't want is often that toxic version of communication. Asking for what I do want. I want you to leave my room. I need alone time. I'm asking you to please stop touching my personal items, right? They're going in each other's rooms all the time. And that you are supporting the person who is um, trying to self-advocate. They might get flustered. They're emotionally unregulated. So sometimes... Not all the time. But sometimes you have to step in and say, okay, hang on. Let's just push the pause button for a second. This isn't about choosing who's right or who's wrong. Do not do that. You're supporting communication. So the person who's trying to self-advocate, what is it? What is it? It's all about an emotional need. What is it you, you want or need right now? Basic level. What do you want or need? Okay. And then for the person who per, who is perceived as the perpetrator, be careful of that. What is it that you want? I just wanted to borrow this. I just, okay, how can you ask? So you're teaching them both self-advocacy. I'm asking you to leave my items alone right now. I just wanted to borrow X for a y amount of time. Okay, so what is a different way you can ask that than you allow the owner of the item to respond. I'm not ready to loan it to you right now. Maybe tomorrow, all right? And then they don't have to be happy with the result. You're not trying to tie this off with a bow. But self-advocacy and boundaries is where a lot of this can be managed. And improve the communication, whether or not they choose to be besties, and please don't force that. They are autonomous, different people.
0: Yeah, this is such a huge topic. And I'm sure parents are listening to this saying, yeah, yeah, I live with this every day. Yeah, this is such a huge topic. And I'm sure parents are listening to this saying, yep, yep, I live with this every single day. So you talk, you obviously, uh, about this a lot and are helping parents. Uh, so how can people connect with you, Allie, and, you know, get some guidance for this very real issue in their homes?
4: Yeah, the fastest way to find me is on social media at Allie Payne on TikTok or Instagram, A-L-Y-P-A-I-N or my website, Um, And I've got articles there and I'm regularly posting information about this.
0: All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today, Allie, and we'll see you again next
4: month. You bet. Thank you.
3: More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
0: Let me ask you something. What's your favorite F word? I've got a few like Fun, Feminism, Friday, and of course that one I cannot say on the radio. But my guest today has one that may not appear on many people's lists, and that's Forgiveness. Shannon Maroney is a trauma therapist and the clinical director of Heal for Real Therapy and Consulting, and she is here to open our hearts to the transformative power of forgiveness. In a world where holding grudges can sometimes feel like the norm, Shannon is here to show us another way, a way that heals and empowers. So let's unfurl the mystery behind this F word and how it can change
5: our lives. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Hi, Candice. Thanks so much. I love all those F words too, including fashion and frolic and all those things. But yeah, forgiveness is my favorite one.
0: Forgiveness is the top of the list. All right. So why is it so powerful?
5: Forgiveness is, uh, it means freedom. It means freedom from bitterness and resentment. Uh, It means that you've, you've actually taken the reins of life back into your hands after someone else or an entity, an institution has hurt you that that your life is taken into their hands and so it's empowering it is and it's very revolutionary
0: i think a lot of people might be listening and thinking that you know forgiveness is for the other person but it's really for you right so what are some other misconceptions that are sort of around forgiveness
5: yeah absolutely Uh, people think that forgiveness lets someone off the hook uh and and that is actually true uh, but it's not the person you think it is.
1: <laughs> it's
5: yourself. <laughs> it's yourself. It's the one who offers it. It's, it's a way of saying that I, I deserve to be, to be free and move forward from what's happened to me. Whether that person takes responsibility or not, the choice can be yours. Um, people think that forgiveness is weak, uh, that it condones bad behavior, or that if you offer it, you're a pushover. And I know from my own journey uh, to find forgiv- forgiveness following my first husband's horrific violent crimes and incarceration to life and all of the fallout for me in my community uh, and stigma and shame and judgment that forgiveness uh, for me has been uh, has been required enormous strength. <laughs> uh, it's not about being weak. It is about you know, uh, working day in and day out, it's very much in the trenches often to find a way forward. Uh, I know from all the people that I've worked with over the years, whether it's in one-on-one counseling or it's on on the land retreats in the Arctic with residential school survivors, that forgiveness does not condone uh, or say any bad behavior was okay. It is saying there's got to be a way forward to reclaim uh, the joy of life and even to find uh, a powerful compassion uh, for the people that have found us.
0: You touched a little bit on your story, and I just mm-hmm. want to let people know listening <laughs> that they absolutely have to go over and listen to your entire podcast where you share your your personal journey and how you did arrive at. Uh, where you are now, and through the power of forgiveness. But if somebody's listening and they're struggling to give
5: that, do you have any advice for them? My, you know, my advice is really to start with yourself. You know, uh, I mean, well, actually, when we think about the people that have harmed us, um, it's really important to remember that, however monstrous their behavior may have been, they are human. And I work with some big quote unquote monsters or rather in big, in cases involving big people labeled as monsters who I know are human beings that have done terrible things. So when we remember, uh, and I used to, here's a really practical tip. When in my, early in my career, when I worked with um, street dwelling youth, many of whom uh, were involved in justice system could be real really um some of them were really intimidating like people that i i I didn't like you know young guys that i thought geez i really don't want to meet you uh on the street in dark Mm -hmm. um i would go and look in their ontario student record at their kindergarten pictures and i'd see some toothless little five-year-old maybe with their hair messed up maybe their, their clothes weren't great maybe they were there was something going on behind the scenes of that photo And it just gave me a reference point to take away a lot of the fear, a lot of the monstrosity, and remember that we all began as children. And that's a really helpful place to start when you're looking to build some kind of compassion or empathy and understand how somebody could have acted the way that they did. And asking yourself, instead of what's wrong with me, why did they do this to me? Ask yourself, what is wrong inside of them? What are they feeling that they could possibly act in this way? We know that hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. And we also know, I believe that healed people heal people. So when you start to look at forgiveness as a way to not say that what they did was okay, but see that there was a human being, most often a hurt or hurting or damaged human being behind the damaging behavior, you can start to lift that victimization off of yourself and feel really empowered and be able to make choices again for yourself. A great quote about forgiveness, and I just um, created a, a beautiful deck of, of cards to, that are a companion to my forgiveness journal called Feel For Real. And each one of the cards has a quote about forgiveness. So there's 52. You can look at one a week. You can look at one a day. Whatever you want. And I use these in my workshops. One of there's so many favorites, but one that comes to mind right now is uh, one that one of my clients shared with me, which is, um, un, unforgiveness is like drinking a poison and expecting the other person to die.
0: Yes, absolutely. I've heard that one before, and that is. Excellent. an Excellent yeah. quote. I, I want people, uh, your story is fascinating. So people definitely have to go listen to the podcast. But I also want them to grab your book, connect with you. So where can they do that?
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm really Googleable. <laughs> to be more direct, you can go to shannonmaroney.com. Uh, you can spell that in a bunch of different ways, you'll still get to me. Uh, and my, my first book is my own story through the glass. And my newest book is your story. It's Heal for Real, a guided journal to forgiving others and yourself. It's a workbook. It's hard work. It's beautiful work. I'm your companion in it. And I really encourage people just to start that journey, uh, just to to start from from somewhere. My personal favorite quote of my whole box of quotations is, forgiveness means letting go of all hope for a better past. And that really speaks to acceptance. And when we can accept ourselves, we can accept what others did. We accept what we have done. None of us is perfect. Every single human being is capable of breaking trust. We're also capable of rebuilding it. Then we set ourselves on a, on a path forward that that really brings out those those great F words that you talked about, like a whole lot of F and fun and <laughs> Yeah <laughs> frolic and and fantastic things that can happen.
0: All right, incredible. Well we're gonna put all the links uh in the podcast liner notes if people are looking for you. And Shannon, I can't thank you enough. I'm sure we're going to have you back on the show another time.
5: Thanks. I hope so. Take care, Candace. <laughs>
0: There's nothing funny about anorexia, but as with most things in life, that doesn't mean we can't insert a little humor when discussing it. No one knows this better than Sherry Siegel-Blick, who is sharing her journey with diet culture, body image, and anorexia in her new book, The Skinny, which follows her messy but hopeful fight for full recovery. Sherry joins me now to discuss. Welcome to What She Said, Sherry.
6: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: So what led you to share your personal journey with anorexia?
6: Um, I thought it was important because there's just so much misunderstanding around the illness, Um, not just in terms of, you know, what thoughts go through people's heads sort of when you're experiencing it and when you're trying to recover. Um, but also just in terms of, you know, what it looks like, um, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions. People think that it's, you know, a disease just for teenagers and actually that's not true, you know, or, or teenage women. And that's not true either. You know, it affects, um, a lot of middle-aged women, um, or people sort of get it as, young people and you don't grow out of it. So either you recover or you don't. And people, a a very large percentage of people don't recover um, and still are struggling many years later. And also it affects men um, and, you know, people... There's a lot of misconception also about what people actually look like when they have anorexia. Um, a lot of people are not severely emaciated, especially when you're in recovery, um, because your body often recovers faster than your brain. And so you look really healthy and everyone thinks you're doing super well when your brain is still struggling to catch up. So,
0: I mean, during the pandemic, there was an explosion of, uh, of anorexia cases into the hospital. How do you think the pandemic impacted that struggle with eating disorders? And did how much did societal pressure play into that?
6: I think people who already were struggling um, got worse, just based on what I understand in the statistics. And that makes sense to me, because if you're already in it, and you're not socializing, and you're not eating with other people, and you're not spending time with other people, um, you're more likely to sort of withdraw and cling on more to your illness. Um, I think that you don't necessarily develop anorexia out of the blue. Like it's a psychos, biopsychosocial. So you have to have the genetics in addition to, you know, so, um, but people with the genetics who started restricting for whatever reason, you know, stress related to the pandemic or, um, you know, any of the things, if you have the illness, it's, that's certainly, you know, a time that you would have gotten hooked.
0: So what challenges did you face in accepting that you had never fully recovered from your eating disorder and how did that realization impact your journey towards recovery?
6: Um you know it was hard because and I think this is a, this is another reason writing the book was so important to me because if I'd read something like this when I was in it um like really in it in my you know when I in my 20s or 30s I really would have understood um, what quasi recovery was and how common it is. So for me personally, because I had been very ill as a teenager, um, I got to a place where I wasn't acutely ill anymore and just presumed that I was fine because things were so different. And then when I had sort of an accidental mini relapse, you know, after the birth of my third child and realized that I had never Recovered. It was it was a pretty hard pill to swallow, and it took me a while to really accept it. Um, there's this thing called that I talk about in the book called anosognosia, which is um, a simp- when somebody has a mental illness, their inability to see their mental illness, which is why a lot of people with anorexia don't actually know that they're ill. Um, I knew that I had been ill. But I presumed that I was all better. Um, so for me, it really not only did I have to really figure out, and I talk about this a lot in the book, um, at the beginning, you know, that I'd never been well. I had to figure out why I wanted to recover, push myself to recover fully, um, and why it would make my life better and why it was worth it. Um, and these were all things that I never really thought about <laughs> for honestly twenty years, and. Um, I think that it's so similar to diet culture in so many ways that people with quasi, in quasi-recovery slip through the cracks because, you know, in the book I talk about it as um, the less attractive second cousin of diet culture, you know, who's not as pretty or popular but gets invited to all the parties because it really does, you get accolades for your exercise and, you know, your, your eating regimen and people don't really think about the fact that it's actually an eating disorder because society... Values these really warped things, and so I think it's harder to spot sometimes.
0: And you tackle in this book with a very, very serious topic with a lot of wit and humor. Why was that important to you?
6: Um, for a few reasons. I mean, firstly, humor is my most important language. I, you know. Um, I find it just an easy way to communicate with people and um, an easy way to relate to people. Um, and also I just didn't want to write another maudlin sad recovery memoir. You know, like we have enough of those and I think that everything, I think even very serious topics can be funny and, you know, not every page of the book is a barrel of laughs, but I think, I think it's really important for people to see the humor in life because you know, because if we don't, it's, it's, it's pretty dire.
0: So where can people uh, find your book and find out more about you?
6: Uh, I have a website. Um, so you can Um My book is available on Amazon. Um, I can, you can also find it in bookstores. And um, I have a recovery account, uh, which is called Repair Not Despair on Instagram. Um, people could also check that out.
0: Alright, wonderful. We'll put all of those links in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast. Sherry, thank you so much for joining me today.
6: Thank you for having me. Starving, you
7: know, cover girlsy, nothing she says. Beauty is pain, and there's beauty in everything. What's a little bit hunger? I can go a little while longer.
3: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
0: We have a special treat today, instead of Anne Brody's regular segment, Anne had the opportunity to interview Brad Garrett, who you probably know from the beloved Everybody Loves Raymond, Till Death, and a plethora of other fantastic shows and movies. Today, he's here to talk about his exciting new show, High Desert, where he stars alongside the brilliant Patricia Arquette. It's streaming now on Apple TV+. Plus. So without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with the incomparable Brad
1: Garrett. Take it away, Anne. And what a great show High Desert is. It's so Thank you. out there. Yes. What do you think is gives it its, its piquancy?
7: well uh the writing you know it all starts with the writing and then you take a talent like patricia arquette who has an uncanny way of taking the absurd and grounding it uh she just has an incredible skill set and when i was reading the script i was like this is so great uh Patricia is one of the few that is going to keep it believable because, you know, uh, in the show, she deals with addiction and grief and loss and things that are very real, that are very traumatic. And she makes it quirky and relatable and funny. And uh, all these things in life do have a humor to it. And uh, so I, I think that's what made me go, "Wow, this is this is a special opportunity."
1: You know the contrast between your character and hers um, in every way, in terms of the personality that you're playing, in terms yeah. of, of your aims and 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 do I want to say moral structures or whatever, sure. and and the size. I mean, all of that really adds to the show. It's
7: phenomenal. Thank you and
1: I think it's it's a risk for people to to have made a show that is so out there and you know yeah.
7: it is kudos. it is and that's the great thing about streaming is you can really do things outside of the box um they give the creatives uh free reign to experiment and uh sometimes it works and and uh I feel very grateful to be part of it. I mean the cast is amazing and jay roach directing and the writing so yeah yeah, we had a good time.
1: Um, of course, you can't, you play the um, the poor PI who's having financial struggles. Yeah. he's nearly bankrupt, and yeah. um, so you know that that's going to open up a lot of opportunity for sure. Both of you maybe to do things you wouldn't normally do. Exactly. Well, in Patricia's case, maybe you know just another day. But <laughs> yeah. but um, that to me is the richest vein in the film, how are we going to pull him back from, yeah. from, and her, because she works there, pull them back from disaster. So, you know, that's a, that's a crucial point.
7: Yeah, um, exactly. That, that's a great point. It's like, we're both in a lifeboat, you know, we're taking on yeah. water and we both have different ideas of how to not sink. And we're both desperate people. You know, she's fighting with, you know, her her obstacles and, and mine are plenty as well. And, uh, you know, that, that's why I love playing people that are flawed that are at the end of their rope, because, you know, we do things sometimes when we, uh, are desperate.
1: Uh, you don't say
7: yes. <laughs> <laughs> too funny.
1: Too funny. Um, and there's this wonderful moment when, uh, Peggy gives you some money yeah. and you insist she takes it back. Cause you know, she needs it too. And yeah, but there's a. You shed a tear. Yeah. yeah. That was I a screamed. wonderful moment.
7: Thank you. Thank you. We were trying to figure out, you know, does this guy cry? How would he cry? Would he really let himself be seen like that? And then the writers and the director were like, well, let's try different things. And I just, you know, I figured he'd be a guy who would hold back whatever he could not to cry in front of this woman. And the squeak came out in the beginning. And they went, what is that? And I went, I don't know. And they went, try that. And that, uh, that was him squeaking and crying. And, um, but I think that that scene is where they really connected, hopefully. And that's where they saw that Patty, uh, Peggy is a good person and, and it's okay for Bruce to ask for help. And I think that kind of started the bond as far as those characters.
1: Um, And also, you know, he he has a way of going around his issues and she goes directly to it. That too makes for a great partnership because I think you can smooth the road with your character and then come in for the punch with hers. Uh, What a great acting partnership. Uh, Did you, you did you do one of those chemistry reads or how did it happen?
7: You, you know, I, uh, we, we, you know, we didn't, we, they, they, uh, you you know, they offered me the role and I've always wanted to work with Patricia. Uh, after I got the role, it, it was kind of funny. Then we had a chemistry type of day where we got together and read through a couple of episodes together to kind of find where that relationship, uh, was. And, um, you know, I was nervous that day because I'm like, well, you know, they said I had the role and I was so excited and and the chemistry thing came after. And I went, well, this is this is good because, you know, I kind of felt it was a rehearsal, too, uh, before we actually hit the set uh, a week later. So, um, you know, you're never sure in this business when you're going to get the phone call to wrap mm-hmm. it up. So <laughs> I was I was really lucky that it worked That's out.
1: That's great. And I just I just love the series so much, and I hope it comes back for a second series. But I just want to Thank ask you. ask you about about your career. A quick question: You have not stopped working in a long, long, long time. Right. What keeps the spark lit for you?
7: Well, the spark for me is is as cliche as it sounds. is I uh, I'm lucky enough to do what I love. Uh, I'm in a business that changes every day, whether you have a job or you don't. Uh, there's always hope, uh, in in something coming along and the older I've gotten, I've been very lucky. I've been able to kind of pick and choose a little bit in the last couple of years, some really wonderful things have come down the line and the spark is just finding those moments. The spark is getting to work with someone like Patricia, who you've admired for years and the spark is still not being sure of what you're doing and still being scared and still being ready to risk. And as long as that keeps going, I'm just going to try to, uh, you know, squeeze out my 15 minutes as long as I can.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think you're one of the most recognizable and stars and that we feel a great affection for you having gotten to know you. Thank, you, Thank so you so much, It's
7: very kind. Appreciate you.
1: That's
0: it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 1059 The Region.